you're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Mark Howden, Director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University and the Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So when we look at the trajectory of change, we are heading towards 1.5 fairly quickly. And and it's a very narrow path in terms of government policies and industry action and individual action to reduce emissions that would actually keep us within 1.5 degrees. It's not impossible, but it's becoming increasingly difficult day by day and year by year. And we haven't got a lot of time. So if we look at the carbon budget, At today's record levels of greenhouse gas emissions, we've only got sort of nine to 10 years at those levels of emissions before we've completely blown the carbon budget that's consistent with staying below 1.5 degrees. And when I talk about the carbon budget, it's a relatively simple concept. So if you think about your budget, you know, say your money week to week, you start out the week with a certain number of dollars and you can spend those dollars quickly, you know, spend them all by Monday evening, or you can spend them slowly with the target of actually finishing the end of the week with just having spent the last dollar. It's the same amount of money, but you can spend it in different ways. You can use that budget to do different things. At the moment, we're in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, we're spending it by Monday afternoon. And we could alternatively slow down that expenditure, those emissions, and take a much longer time to use up that carbon budget, which is available to us. And in the process, actually have a softer transition, like going from where we are to where we need to be. So that's the the idea behind a carbon budget. And it works simply because there's effectively a linear relationship between accumulated carbon dioxide emissions and temperature. So if we add up all of the carbon dioxide emissions since 1850 or thereabouts, and we plot it against temperature, we see there's effectively a straight line relationship. And because of that straight line relationship, you can say, if we have any given temperature limit, like one and a half degrees or two degrees, this is the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions we can emit over the history of 1850 and be consistent with that budget. And so that gives us a target. And we're really chewing into that budget amount very, very quickly. Now, in terms of 1.5 degrees, Most people have no idea, you know, is 1.5 degrees big or is it small? The answer is in an Earth systems context, one and a half degrees is really big. Whereas in your day-to-day context, you know, in your neighborhood, one and a half degrees Celsius is not really distinguishable. The difference between a 22 degree day and a 23 and a half degree day, they're both quite comfortable temperatures. There's no big deal there. But at an Earth system level, that's a really big change. So if we think back to the last glaciation, the last ice age, you know, so think of those movies where the surface of the earth was in many places covered by ice and snow. We had kilometers of ice over parts of Europe and parts of North America, and our oceans were 120 meters below where they currently are. That was five degrees that did that. So an ice age was five degrees cooler than our historical temperatures. We're already almost heading towards one and a half degrees. So that's essentially a third of an ice age. And if we, where we're tracking to will is around about three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, which is like two thirds of an ice age worth of change. But obviously in the other direction, ice ages are colder, we're getting warmer. But that it just might give you a little bit of a feel for, you know, 1.5 being really, really big. 
So I've been involved in the IPC since the early 90s, which is a, you know, a long, long time. And, and, and I've been engaged in many different roles in the IPCC. So it hasn't just been churning the handle, doing the same thing every time. And I've seen a big evolution of the IPCC. So when I first joined, it was fairly much a bit of a scientific oddity in some ways. And But these days, it's actually core business in terms of geopolitics, you know, the government to government relations, positioning different countries against each other for comparative advantage, etc. So we've seen a big change in terms of the meaningfulness of research in relation to climate change, and that's reflected in government interest. Now, there's different views on this, but fundamentally, I see the IPCC as being effective because it is actually owned by the governments. So that's the governmental in the word intergovernmental panel. So the scientists who do the work almost invariably for free. So, you know, all of that stuff for the IPCC has been pro bono, like it's been free and on top of my day job. So it's a significant personal and professional cost to do these things. But all that work from the scientists, which most people think of as the IPCC, is in fact subsidiary to the governments who actually make all of the key decisions about the scope of the IPCC reports and the approval of the reports. And that might seem a bit problematic in some ways, but what it actually means is that when the approval happens, that has to happen in a unanimous way. That means every government in that room agrees with those statements in that approval. And that means that every government owns it. They can't say then subsequently, oh, I don't believe that bit of science because they've actually signed off on it. And so that's actually the power of the IPCC is the ownership of the messages by the governments. So it's not the ownership of scientific messages. It's actually the ownership of the government's messages. And that's the power. And as soon as we become more advocates, I think we lose that power. One of the things we have to do is we have to increase the rate of learning. So we're entering into increasingly uncharted territory, and not just in terms of climate change, but in many, many other areas of activity, and AI being one of those, of course. And I think what we need to do is we need to find ways to learn more quickly individually, but also importantly, learn more quickly as a society, you know, as communities, as villages, as professional groups. And there are advantages of using some of those technologies in terms of accelerating that learning. But if we just blindly use some of those technologies like AI, we could do quite the opposite. We could take the creative sort of aspects of being a human and essentially outsource that or try to outsource it to a computer. And I can predict that's not going to go well. Being overly reliant on AI, which is incredibly computing intensive, if those computers aren't run by renewable energy, we just power up on more climate change and make it worse. So, so we have to be smart about the way we approach this. We need to be discerning about the technologies we use and how we use them. And we need to think about the relationships between those technology and social outcomes, environmental outcomes, you know, how to redesign our systems, how to redesign our governance. So I think there's going to be a need for a lot more thought and creativity in the future. We live in a diverse world and we're in a funny time where we, in a sense, sometimes see the best of humanity and sometimes see the worst of humanity. And, and I think what we need to do is be very strong in wanting to lift the game of each other's and, and ourselves. And so, so I think that's one of the sort of key things, uh, particularly young people should be demanding that we actually behave better towards each other and care more about each other and for the world that we live. In, in terms of those fires and things, exactly as you say, is that the world which we thought was going to hit us in 2050 or 2070 in a way is hitting us now in the 2020s. So those risks in many cases are coming 
much faster and harder than we thought were going to come. And so in many cases, we're unprepared for the severity of those changes in risk. And so we need to lift our game in terms of that preparation for big events like those fires or droughts or floods that we've seen over the last few years. But at the same time, we need to both reduce greenhouse gas emissions as as well as adapt to the changes that we're seeing. Uh, And increasingly, as I mentioned before, we need to integrate that emission reduction task with the climate adaptation task with the sustainable development task ahead of us. So we actually ensure that we actually tick all boxes off when we take an action rather than just ticking one box and putting big crosses others. So we just need to be smarter about how we do things. The main criticism of parts of the offset schemes is around about what's called additionality and also the effectiveness of the monitoring. So it's the robustness of the measurements. And and so the criticisms were that, you know, some of these schemes were counting areas that shouldn't have been counted in terms of the carbon accumulation and that additionality component there to say, if you're going to take on board carbon credits, it can only be for actions that are additional to what you would have done anyway. And there has been a review of this and there's you know ongoing changes to the policy and evaluation as to whether that will be enough to satisfy the critiques of the system remains to be seen. Well, different people learn in different ways, and you've already mentioned this. Some people, you know, haven't got a particularly mathematical bent, but, you know, they respond well to narratives. And I think when we look at that, you have some people who think in quantitative terms and some people who think qualitative. Some people are motivated by feelings and some people are motivated by facts. And what I think the arts can do is they can actually help, particularly with the motivation side of things, and help engage with people who aren't necessarily being engaged by the fact-based discussions. So I think there's... Not only a creative element of opening up the futures and reimagining futures, there's an element of engaging with otherwise engaged people. There's elements of motivation for people to actually motivate people to take action in appropriate ways. You mentioned duty of care before, and I think part of this is taking action that shows that we care. So, And I think this is not just caring about the way things are, but the way things could be. So it's the future that we're heading towards, which is quite challenging in many ways, versus the future that we could have as individuals and societies. And I think there's a big gap there, and I think that gap is growing. And I think the aspiration people should have is how do we close that gap? You know, How do we actually go to a world which is worth living in? We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.